This is a test of the emergency podcast system. Activated by contract termination. Rumors of our demise are greatly exaggerated. Welcome to Stacy on the Right with your host, Stacy Washington. She's blessed to be a Bible reading, gun toting, Air Force veteran, wife, and mom. Righteously American. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm still righteously American. Still coming at you live and direct. Yeah, right here. StacyOnTheRight.com. You can also check out the live stream there. Today we don't have video, so you'll be getting to watch the chat if you're watching the show at StacyOnTheRight.com. And if you are uh, new to the show, well, welcome. Welcome. (laughs) We're so glad you're here. (laughs) Yeah, we're super excited about it. That's me and all the voices of everyone in America loving on you and feeling that you're awesome. All right, that's enough of that. Listen, we are just uh, really blessed to have the opportunity to be broadcasting today. And we will be chatting about a number of different things. We're going to start off with Hunter Biden resigning from a Chinese company. Um, We also have a little bit of audio for you today. We're going to be hearing from a Democratic strategist about Hunter Biden Um, And then President Biden made a really nasty statement about Saudi Arabians. And um, I know you're probably going to fall out when this next thing comes out of my mouth. So be duly warned. Um, I'm going to defend the people of Saudi Arabia. Yeah, (laughs) that's about to happen. And then um, we're going to hear Senator Scott talking about the violence at Trump rallies. And, you know, I think it's interesting um, that no one seems to be disturbed when leftists visit violence upon people on the right just because they're supporting Donald Trump, but a video can throw everybody up in arms. So hey to everybody in the chat room. We have Chi and Smoke and TK18. Um, hey guys, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for your continued support. Um, you you two can join in on the Stacy on the Right Show Nation uh, by just contributing. You can either buy your own stuff, which indirectly contributes to the show at teespring.com slash Stacy in the warehouse. Um, or you can check out what we have going on at Patreon, patreon.com slash Stacy on the right. And of course you can always PayPal, paypal.me slash Stacy on the right. All right. So thanks so much for doing that. Um, so right now I want to get to, we're going to talk about all things Biden. Let's first talk about whether or not it's valid for people to be asking questions about this Biden issue. And This is a Democratic strategist. She happens to be a permanently tanned lady who's a Democrat who works on strategy for Democrat campaigns nationally and locally all over the country. And she says that, um, well, I'll just let you listen. Well, I think it's a conversation that actually will come up on the debate stage on Tuesday. I think, I mean, if you have Tulsi Gabbard, I think Tulsi Gabbard is going to go right into it. I mean, I, I believe that this is going to be a topic that comes up that because sense. because we're at a point now where, especially those who are in the lower tiers, um, but have made the debate stage where they have to set themselves apart. And now anyone is fair game, especially Vice President Biden, is fair game for them to say, hey, look, we have to question his judgment here. Hmm. So she thinks that his judgment may need to be questioned. And by the way, TK18 is Tracy. Tracy has been a longtime chat room person over at, at YouTube and now is over at StacyOnTheRight.com. Just holding it down. Thanks, Tracy. Good to see you there. Um, so she's actually just basically saying, look, um, 
it's it's okay to ask questions and he should be willing to answer. And I think that's really reasonable. And for her to say it about a, the Democrat front runner, it means that either she's a Bernie Sanders supporter or she has an agenda or maybe she's just a good old fashioned American who happens to be on the left and feels like everyone should have the right to ask questions and candidates should have the responsibility of answering them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, um, you know, I thought that was fascinating that she said that. Now, we talked about, and we will get to later, the story of the Mexican National Guard stopping and turning back a migrant caravan headed for the United States, which I was just like, no kidding, you guys. I was like, so they did it? They, they actually are doing this now? And they are. Um, and so I, I'm excited about that. I want us to be seeing more of that, actually. Um, so the other thing I said we were going to discuss is... Joe Biden actually, um, it's actually Hunter Biden getting tossed off of a company fired from, he stepped down from, whatever, a company in China. So first, let's get to Joe Biden's comments about Saudi Arabia having no socially redeeming qualities. Unbelievable. Foreign assistance to countries who in fact engage in engage in this kind of behavior just like i would if i were dealing with china what they're doing to the uyghurs a million uyghurs out in uh, you know muslims so what's the difference it is pure unadulterated prejudice so a country like saudi arabia saudi arabia same thing by the way they have very little social redeeming value no i i've been blunt about it i've been very very blunt about it very blunt about it i know they are supposed their ally and all the rest hmm so um, I'm sure that Joe Biden in his in his various positions and roles as House member and then senator and then vice president in probably all of those capacities, he has traveled to the Middle East. Now, I first want to say um, I don't agree with the practice of Sharia and I'll never defend that. And I know that Saudi Arabia practices a form of Sharia law and their citizens are subject to that. And so we, their customs and their ways are very foreign to us and very, um, they feel frightening. They feel oppressive. They are oppressive. Um, and it makes it difficult for us to discuss their societies in any real, you know, it's, it's not like you feel kind towards the Saudi Arabians because they actually still like they decapitate people, et cetera, et cetera. So that being said. Wow, they have no socially redeeming values. Well, one of the things that they don't believe in in Saudi Arabia is theft because the penalty for theft is the removal of whichever hand you claim to have stolen the item with. So they're very, very careful not to steal from each other or from tourists or visitors who come to town. The other thing that he's leaving out is that the people themselves aren't in charge of the government like we are here. And I want to make it perfectly clear crystal clear for everyone who thinks, you know, in some cases we have, uh, you know, regimes that it's from the ground up, it's corruption from the ground up, it's the kind of murderous dictator-like activity, everybody's killing everybody else, it's tribal war upon tribal war, and there really are just very few people who are on the outside of the degradation and awfulness that is going on in a country. But in other countries where in Saudi Arabia, they actually have a royal family that decides how they live. They and and the, you know, uh, Islamic leadership decide what is allowed and what isn't. They make it like they just recently said women could drive. 
Well, before that, women couldn't drive in public. So on your compound, you could drive from one building to the other, but out in the world, out in the, the regular places, you couldn't as a woman. So they, they changed that rule because they wanted to stop the, it's like a criticism that was constantly levied against Saudi Arabia that they're backwards and they're the kind of country that, you know, they're just a backwards nation because their women can't drive. So it was more a matter of maintaining some kind of pride for their society than it was actually giving women any additional rights. But, you know, there it is. Take what you can get. I know how they are because I spent 94 days there when I was in my 20s and on active duty in the Air Force. And I remember going over there with some preconceived notions about what Saudi Arabia would be like, mostly because I knew my dad's soldiers from when we lived in Germany and I was in high school and they went away to the to desert, uh, desert storm, um, the first Gulf War. And when they went over and they came back, they had really negative things to say. They, and it wasn't, a, remember, it wasn't a very long war. It was a bombing war where they just bombed and bombed and bombed and then came back and and some ground troops went but it wasn't really as bad as most wars where they go and they stay and they come back and they came back with you know a lot of them came back with skin ailments and things like that but they had negative things to say about the entire Middle East and I remember thinking about that and um, (laughs) just feeling like it wasn't a place I ever wanted to go it wasn't a place I wanted to visit and I was a very travel curious kid because I grew up in Germany and I've been all over the world Um, before I ever went into the Air Force and went to Saudi Arabia on active duty, I'd already been to England. Um, You know, I'd been to France four times, not just Paris, France, but other parts of France. I'd been to Spain and um, Italy and uh, just, I'd been all over Austria, um, all over the, the nation of Germany. And then of course, to Russia back when it was the USSR and I was a freshman in high school. And so, you know, there's a, a really interesting feeling that you get when you hear people downgrade, uh, you know, the country for so many, like so many different negative comments about a nation. It makes you not want to go there. So what I ended up doing was it was one of those places I didn't want to go to. And then in uh, on active duty in the Air Force, when it was my turn to go um, to Cobar Towers because it was our unit's rotation and our troops were going in and out in groups. I thought to myself, I've never wanted to go to Saudi Arabia. And I told one of my commanding officers that, and oh my goodness, he was like, he goes, aren't you the one who's been all over the world already? And I was like, yeah. He says, "Uh, okay, well then you need to add this to your list. (laughs) Just as a matter of fact, he just, he barely even looked up from his desk. He was like, yeah, you just need to add this to your list. I was like, okay, sir. He said, yep, that's the attitude you should have. And so that's how I took it. And when I got there, oh my goodness, what I was struck by was that all of the people in Saudi Arabia that I interacted with, they were such a quiet, soft-spoken, gentle group of people. Now, I'm not talking about the religious police who run around beating you with a little, it's a little, uh, looks like a little police bat. Um, that they carry on their waist and they'll beat the stuffing out of you if, you, if you're doing anything they consider to be wrong. I'm not talking about those guys. I'm talking about the regular people that we met. Soft-spoken, gentle, kind, especially in the shopping districts where we were going, you know, in our off time, we'd go eat off, off of the, the base and then we'd um, rock around and shop a little bit. And I bought some jewelry and I bought a little Flacati rug and I didn't buy much. I mean, I was, I was a senior airman. I had a very tiny income um, and it was... It was just a an, an opportunity to get out and see some of the the sites, but 
to say that they have no socially redeeming value, I, I'm, I just keep going back to this is from a man whose son slept with his other son's widow and he and his wife gave them the seal of approval for doing that. What's socially redeeming about that? So I know that we are all, if you're, if you're saved, if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, you are a saint. You're not a sinner saved by grace. You're a saint. You, your identity changes when you give your life to Christ. You are a saint who sometimes sins. That is your identity. Bam, bam, boom, done. But if you're not a Christian, then obviously you have some place to go. You're a sinner. You have some things to do. And all of us are capable of the ultimate in depravity. So this isn't me sitting on high on some you know, ivory pedestal, raining down prognostications upon the Biden family. But you have to admit that if you could even think through one of your kids being an adult and another of your kids being an adult and both kids are married and then one of your children passes away, God forbid, God forbid. And then the surviving son sleeps with the widow and then comes and tells you about it. And instead of you smacking him across the face with the, all the force you can muster up in your little old 70-year-old arm, you just say, well, we love you so much and we love her so much and we just want y'all to be happy. What? And then later you come out and we find out you've been doing payola and selling the influence from your position as vice president and your son was on a board making 83 grand a month, the same son who slept with the, his, his dead brother's wife. And one more thing, um, you say Saudi Arabians have no socially redeeming value? At this point, Joe Biden doesn't have any more room to talk. So I, I, I look, you know, everyone's going to do what they're going to do. We can't stop the Bidens from having a family that belongs on one of those horrible MTV reality television shows. But we can assess the things that he says and understand that this it, it's not right. What he said wasn't right. So to get to Hunter Biden in these last minute here, he's giving up his job at a Chinese back company because of all the scrutiny he's received. Hunter Biden is stepping down from a board of a Chinese-backed private equity company and promising to forego all foreign work as if his father, quid pro Joe, is elected president in 2020. So it's been months of him keeping a relatively low profile as President Trump has just been ripping him to shreds. Unfortunately, him doing this, stepping down, actually makes him look even more guilty than he did before because everybody's been wondering where he is. Now we know he's been in China sitting on a board. So his lawyer, George Messires, issued a statement saying that the younger Biden would resign at the end of the month from the management company of a private equity fund that's backed by Chinese state-owned entities. Here's the quote. Hunter always understood that his father would be guided entirely and unequivocally by established U.S. policy, blah, 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 blah. We'll be right back. <laughs> the right. Hey, welcome to Stacy on the Right. And thank you so much for being here today. It's happy Friday. Happy Good News Friday. And um, we're just going over everything that has to do with the president. Really, it's, it's kind of 
amazing. The president actually spent time with um, the people of Minnesota last night, and they just had what I would say was a a rip-roaring good time. And in doing so, um, in doing so, they have just had an amazing opportunity to hear from the president, to hear from some of the people who are in his uh, inner circle, and to just kind of catch the the fever for it. Um, so there was a little bit of violence. There was there was some some violence going on. Um, that was just it was unacceptable. They were beating up people outside of the Trump rally, and these are anti-Trumpers, um, really just letting their emotions fly. And so that was what Tim Scott was weighing in on. And I, I'm still working on getting that for you. Um, so I will I will have that for you in a little bit. But I wanted to talk about our Good News Friday. And then we're going to circle back around to some of these other items. And let me just pop over into the chat rooms. Because sometimes managing everything myself, I have trouble getting over into. Okay, here we go. Yeah. Hey, everybody. Oh, volume is too low. Let's see if that's better. Is that better? Um. Yeah, so it's Lynn and Melody and Douglas, Doug Poss, um, Black Conservative OG and Lynn and Cynthia. Hey, happy Good News Friday, everybody. Um, thanks for being in there. And then on Facebook, oh, ton of likes. Okay, hello. It's Friday, so we have a good number of people in there. Um, Janet, Karen, um, who else is in here? Tina, Marilyn, Jackie Howard, David. Um, George, Jennifer, Ronald joined the show. Doug is over here too. Um, thank you guys for being here. It's so nice to see everybody on the live stream. And then of course, I know it's Stacy on the right, my website. I know that we have people in the chat room over there. Oh, look. Okay. I don't know if this is actually accurate because I don't know when's the last time I refreshed this page, but, um, I wanted to go into good news Friday for this information. Um, and then we will also dive into, all of the betrayals of the Kurds, because everyone's saying that um, we ha- we have to be good to the, we have to keep fighting for the Kurds, even though the Kurds have been fighting in the Middle East for just 30, 40 years, probably longer than that. And in our estimation of things where we have our, we have this, it's called blue on green violence. And the blue on green violence is where our troops are training Afghanis and the Afghanis, when they're finally trained and they're handed their gun for the first time, they turn and shoot the person who trained them and kill them. And so for me, I keep going back to the, the, there's a right way and there's a wrong way. And one of the worst things in the world is for someone to, an American soldier to be overseas training someone and have that person kill him. And then they come home in a body bag. And that's some of the, what the president was talking about last night. He said, I have to sign these letters to these families where their son or daughter was killed overseas. And some of the circumstances, it's it's not even it's not what you can would consider a wartime kill. It's not like they were in war. They were fighting in a war zone or something. These are people who are just in a training scenario with live fire. And the person they're training, as soon as they're given the gun, they turn and they shoot their trainer to death, which is an American kid. Um, and so it, I, I've got the chat room open over here. Smoke, chi. Um, Richard Layton. Hey, hey, everybody over here in the uh, the chat room over at Stacy on the right. It looks pretty full. I, ha- I can't see everyone's names. Um, thank you for being there. So this is what's wrong with with us continuing this war. So we'll get into that. 
But right now, I want to go uh, to this. This was the the story that kind of gave me a whole lot of really encouragement for going into the weekend. Okay, so the thing that I noticed about the homeless situation is it comes about after heavy gentrification or success in one sector or another. In Silicon Valley, Los Angeles, San Francisco, places like that in California, it's the tech boom that's actually driving the homelessness. What happens is people who are working in technology where they would, if they were working in some other sector, they'd be earning maybe 70 or 80,000 a year or earning four and 500,000 a year. And so they can afford to pay for better housing. So people who are selling homes realize that the market has changed and they increase their prices, which drives out people who aren't in that income bracket. So the people who are homeless in California and in Austin, which has experienced a tech boom, they are people who were previously gainfully employed and they had a place. But when their place, the lease went, the lease is up and the landlord says, yeah, we're, we're selling this whole building as condos or we're raising this building and we're putting up whatever. The single family home you've been renting, we're going to, you can't rent it anymore. When your lease is up, you're done. And when they go to look for something else, all of the apartments that are affordable are taken and so they're looking at these houses that are like 1.6 million. They can't afford that. They couldn't afford it before. They've lost their place that they could afford. So these are not people who are, you know, you've got $20,000 in the bank and you're like, well, let's just move to, um, you know, let, let's let's move across the country to a cheaper area. Because in my mind, I'm going to be real here. And this may be where you come from too. When I hear a story like that, I'm like, well, if that happened to us, you know, we would we would move. Well, we would, but if you don't have any savings or if you don't have any family, like worst comes to worst, push comes to shove, if my parents aren't in the same situation, there's no way we would be homeless because my family would take us in. There's no way we would be homeless even if my parents were in that situation because extended family in states all over the country would just say, come on, y'all all pile in here, but you just better know you're helping cook, you're helping clean, and everybody's working. Kids are working, you're working, everybody's going to have a job to help support this situation. And that is what would happen. But this story actually takes a look at what drives the homelessness for these people in Austin. One of the things that's driving it is that these people don't have that extended family to fall back on. So the lady who is the center of this story over at Business Insider, this is in Austin, Texas, and the the, the name of the place that she helps to run, she also lives there, is called Community First. It's 180 formerly homeless residents living in 200 square foot tiny homes at Community First Village. They pay rent that averages 300 a month. They go to work thanks to on-site employment opportunities. And there's a two-acre farm on the property where they can get their food at the market once a week. So each of these units, and this we're talking efficiency here. And when I say it's a glorified shed, I mean it's a shed that has been electrified. And it has all of the things that a normal apartment would have. Insulation, drywall walls, a ceiling, lights, um, flooring. Like I said, a kitchen, which means just one one wall, part of one wall has cabinets and a small refrigerator, sink, full-size stove was what I saw in the pictures. And then, you know, there's a closet. There's no bathroom in these things. There's a bedroom at the back 
there are windows in it and there's a room enough for her to have a couch that's basically situated directly across from the kitchen. She has a bunk bed in her bedroom because remember, I mean, now let's face it. Have we not all seen Chip and jo- Joanna Gaines's shed where it's her potting shed and it's bigger than most kids' bedrooms? It's huge. It's the size of someone's living room and it has a vaulted ceiling and it's almost two stories tall on the inside and it's gorgeous and she just has a big table in the middle and it's electrified heated and cooled and it's across a patio where you walk through a garden I mean it's fantastic I I think she's one of the most talented designers I've ever seen and I am a design junkie and I've I read all the books I have a ton of the books and I, I love that's like a thing I do to kind of decompress and I've been doing it ever since my husband and I were married and before that um, reading those kinds of books, checking the magazines and the books out of the library and looking for tips and ideas and sewing pillows and curtains and, you know, making tree skirts. I'm, I'm crafty as I'll get out. I mean, that's like a whole nother channel that I could have if I could just figure out how to do all this stuff without driving myself insane. Um, so off on that tangent, back to the size of the sheds, you know, a shed can be anything, but in this case, the sheds we're talking about are the typical sheds that you think of. Um, bigger than your tiny shed, so bigger than your like thousand to twenty two hundred dollar shed. Um, it's about three hundred square feet is what they're working with. But the reason they don't have a bathroom or a shower in there is because that's communal. They have communal baths and showers on the property. All of the area in between the sheds, they're set up like little rows of homes, but not on a straight line, on a curving, winding pathway, so that when you're walking through it, you're walking through a neighborhood. And most of the sheds have a porch or some kind of paved area or, you know, stone or something where you can have seats or a little couch or um, something to sit on outside so you can actually spend time outside. And part of the, the draw of this is community. Homeless people who've been on the streets who are desperate to have somewhere to lay their head that's safe, that's dry, that's clean, to have a shower, to have a, the ability to use the restroom indoors. People who there's these are civilized people. They're not criminals. Some of them, some of them were criminals. So these are regular people. But they're living in this community. And one of the main reasons that the community works for them is that the people who live there with them, they literally become their neighbors. So they're not just living there in isolation. The reason you don't have your own bathroom and your own shower and the huge kitchen and, you know, the reason it's not a full-size house is because when we live in full-size houses, many of us go into our four walls or our 18 walls or our 36 walls and we just stay in there and we don't communicate or interact with our neighbors. And if you have the ability to do that and you're self-sustaining, that's your choice. But if you're homeless and you're coming back from that and you're desperate for connection then a community like this gives you that. So here are the high points. Um, It's located on the east side of Austin, Texas. Their original location was actually like they were threatened. Their lives were threatened because they were near a community that didn't want a homeless community near them. So they didn't do the ground lease on that that the city council had offered. And instead, donors got together um, and made an amazing, uh, you know, kind of, fundraising effort and they bought some land where they put this village uh, it's not the first tiny home village used to hose, house ham, homeless populations in the U.S. but it's still unique in its concept the village is the brainchild of founder Alan Graham who spent years serving the city's homeless before pooling 18 million in privately donated funds to construct Community First back in 2015 as the name implies the project takes a Community First a spinoff of the Housing First term approach to create a sense of community amongst residents 
he says there's a philosophy that if we build housing and then put people in housing that that mitigates the problem but he says it takes more than just homes and so as you scroll down you see the lady who runs everything her last name's draper she was homeless for quite a while um and then she found this and not only does she live there but she works there too she's kind of the maintenance person running around preparing the tiny homes when someone moves out she prepares the place cleans it gets it ready she even sets up um, the first supply of food that's in there toiletries you know soap toothpaste all of the shampoo products are from Paul Mitchell the owner of Paul Mitchell actually donates it they have a salon on the site it's really a barber shop it's a shed and it is where you can go and get your hair cut get your face shaved or you know whatever whatever it is that you might need um, while you're living there they have a market where you can go and purchase items that you need and you have to work. So they have an auto body place there where cars are repaired. And you have to work at one of the places there or somewhere in the community. Because if you don't pay your rent, you're booted. Because they say if without paying the rent, you're not a part of the community. It costs around $6 million a year to maintain. About 900000 of that is covered by the rent that they charge. And the rest is donations. Now look, I want to put this out there for us as Christians, as human beings, as you know, politically on the right, this is the kind of thing we need to be coming together with whoever is interested in doing it and creating these communities across the country. And the reason I say that is because if you're not interested in living in a shed yourself, if you're not, if you can't even imagine that, really the extent of your ability to imagine is irrelevant when compared with what is so important. And that is that People are homeless. Now, in this community, you can't bring kids and you can't be like you. It's no couples. It's all single people who are homeless who live in this community. There are other communities that don't have those restrictions. This community is actually they call them missionals. Christians have moved in on the outskirts of the community and they live in RVs. And some of them brought their own like trailers, which are sheds, too. And they live nearby and they provide counseling and uh, Bible studies and just anything that has to do with Christian uh, ministry. And they have moved in next to this community because they want to minister to these people. So there's nothing more like what Jesus mandated for us to do as Christians than for us to see a need and fill it. For us to say, and I know how it is, you know, I live in one of those communities where if anybody even thought about putting up, you know, buying 20 acres out here and putting up a homeless community or a tiny shed community, there would be backlash. But this isn't about that. It's not that it has to go adjacent to some affluent community. It's that there are thousands of acres in the city of St. Louis where this concept could be implemented. There are also areas further out from the city where this could be implemented. This is not something that's impossible. And if you think about how many GoFundMes have been launched and have raised just millions of dollars and that they put this up for $18 million, the wheels should be turning for us as people. The wheels should be turning. So I'm, I'm interested in more than what we're seeing here. And I, I told you, I think I said 300 square feet. It's actually a 27-acre village housing the most vulnerable of the city's, the capital city's homeless population. And 200 square foot is about the size of each of the little sheds. And what I also found interesting about it is that because the people who are running it have been homeless before, and because they're interested in serving only the homeless population, 
when I say it's a glorified shed, in your mind, you might be thinking of that thing that you see when you, you drive by Lowe's. And that's the basis for it. It's that thing that's in the parking lot. But what they've done is they've actually taken the shed and put a porch on it, put you know doors on it, made it look like an actual tiny house, which makes it special. Um, so that's our Good News Friday. We just need more of these. We'll be back with more. Stay there. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Um, I want to get one more thing. Uh, I know it's a big news story today. It's this video of President Trump. It's, it's, so first of all, it's a parody video. It's obviously made in the same style as some other videos that have shown President Trump wrestling with um, people, and the people's heads have been replaced by symbols of the news organizations that hate President Trump. Now, the video is actually a, a clip of a movie that is very violent and bloody. And instead of the character in the movie's head being shown, they put President Trump's head over the, the actual star of this movie. And I can't even remember <clears throat> which movie it is, but I have seen this clip before. And so, first of all, the president didn't make it. The president didn't order that it was made, and it wasn't made by any of the president's campaign organizations, PACs, or anything else. Now, that being said, it's violent and it's disgusting. Just the same as the movie that it's taken from. So, so the liberals never had a problem with the movie itself, but now that someone has taken the time to superimpose their heads and their organization logos over it, now it's a problem. I had a problem with the movie when it first came out, I, and I still can't remember what it was, and I'm looking here. So the movie isn't even new. Um, it was created back in late June of 2018, and it didn't get very much attention at that point. Now, Brian Stelter is saying it's President Trump's fault. Um, the White House Correspondents Association, which is run by ABC News reporter Jonathan Carl, a leftist, has um, issued a statement saying they're horrified. But President Trump didn't make the video. He didn't have anything to do it. He didn't have anything to do it. He didn't have anything to do with it. Um, he he. It was shown at one of his properties in the same way that any person who owns a Seven Eleven, someone could be out in the parking lot with their music blaring, and it could be having curse words in it or any kind of a horrible, awful thing. And um, you know what would happen? the 7-Eleven owner wouldn't be responsible for that. They could say, go, um, you know, go, go off this parking lot. This is private property. You can't be here. Or they could wait until the person had pumped their gas or whatever they were doing, and then they would leave. But the point is, it's not the owner's fault if someone shows something objectionable at their property. First of all, how would the president have even known this was being shown until it was too late and had already been shown? Even if one of his employees sent a note to one of his managers or something, or maybe had Don Jr.'s phone number or something and texted him and said, There's, they're playing something awful here. Some guests of the hotel are playing some awful video. And Don Jr. said, well, 
you know, is it still on or what did, what did they play? And then he followed up on it. Just think about how many times hotel owners are unaware of stuff that's going on in their premises. The fact that they own the hotel doesn't mean that they're there literally walking the grounds and combing the area for anything that might be untoward. So the people who watch the video, they may or may not have enjoyed it. The person who decided to put it on may or may not have been admonished afterwards for even showing it to the group. We don't know. Maybe they enjoyed it. Maybe they thought it was funny. I don't think it's funny. But it's, it's kind of irrelevant because so much more objectionable content has been put out there. The same people who said Kathy Griffith was exercising her freedom of speech rights. Um, the same way that that happened. And they didn't have any problem with it. But they have a problem with this video, which is clearly something that was made up and has nothing to do with the president. So that's my take on this. Um, I watched most of it, like more than half of the video. And that's why I recognize it as a scene from a movie that I found objectionable. Again, I'm sorry, I don't remember which one it was. Um, I don't remember which what the name of the movie was. So anyway, I'm moving on. Um, there is this story out there. The Census Bureau is seeking state data, including citizenship info. And I want to get into that. Just hold on one sec, quick sec here. Oh, here's the video. I'm adding it to the show, you guys. Um, yeah, here we go. I'm adding it to the show notes. So if you want to watch it, I mean, you're not going to get much out of it, but at least you'll have seen it. So you'll know what everybody's so outraged about. And I just, I always like to ask people without getting outraged along with them, without getting drawn into a big, you know, fight just to say, Hey, um, is it that you, um, had a problem with Kathy Lee Griffin also, you know, doing her, her decapitation of the president? And showing it on TV, so um, and showing it all over social media, so Baron might might see it. Did you have a problem with that? And if they say they did, then you know you can go from there in whatever direction you feel is best. But if they say they didn't, well, sounds a little hypocritical. Um, so, and then in the uh, in the chat room here, people are discussing some kind of shooting that happened. I'm not I'm not familiar with that story, so I'm not going to cover it here on the show. Um, but I will close that one out. I wanted to talk about the Census Bureau data because this was the story that the liberals made into a cause celebre over whether or not people who were in this country should be asked if they're American citizens. I mean, it's to me, I'm still dumbfounded that liberals especially college-educated liberals and people who clearly think they are our betters didn't understand the need to ask people if they're in the country lawfully. Well, I think they understood it. They just didn't want to. So turns out it's getting asked anyway. The U.S. Census Bureau is asking states for driver's license records that typically include citizenship data and has made a new request for information on recipients of government assistance, alarming some civil rights advocates. The two approaches documented by the AP come amid President Trump's efforts to make citizenship a key aspect of federal information gathering in the run-up to the 2020 census. Despite this year's U.S. Supreme Court ruling that a specific citizenship question can't be included, which again, um, that is excuse me, lawful, and the U.S. Supreme Court ruled incorrectly. Uh, Yeah, I said it. They ruled incorrectly, okay? Um, 
Civil rights advocates, of course, worry that the wider net being cast by the Trump administration could chill Latino participation in the population count, which will determine how many congressional seats are given. But I, I think what I'm upset about is that they want people in this country unlawfully to have congressional representation, but they don't want them to have to own up to the fact that they're here unlawfully. So um, experts caution that inaccuracies in state motor vehicle records also make them a poor choice for tracking citizenship. Um, you know, I don't really care if the, if the Supreme Court won't let him do his job as the president of the United States, then he can go and use other methods because he is actually in charge of the U.S. Armed Forces and the government. So he should use whatever is at his disposal. Now, the American Association of Motor Vehicle Administrators told the AP that most, if not all, states recently received requests for information, including citizenship status, race, birth dates, and addresses. The association has advised members to consult their privacy offers, and each state is making their own determination of how to respond. Okay. Pick how you want to respond, but don't be shocked if if you respond incorrectly that your state might have some dollars that are yanked back too. You know, um, so whatever that, that's, that's where that is. Um, and then I wanted to get to, hold on a second here. Cause I had a lot of stories on today's show. So I hope you guys can get to all of these if you're, if you're interested. Um, so speaking of the 2020 race, um, and the, the census question for the 2020 census, Looks like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren have both submitted tax plans for, you know, they're running for the presidency that would actually make it almost impossible for wealthy families to make a living here in this country. Billionaires would actually be subject to an effective tax rate of 97.5%. So the 400 richest Americans would have 97.5% of their income taxed to the government. Not only their income, but their wealth, the wealth that they've already stored away would be taxed and whittled away by, by these liberals. Now, right now, uh, Elizabeth Warren's proposals put the top income tax bracket at 62%, which is still outrageous. 23% is the top right now. Um, under the new tax plan, which is, again, more than one-fifth of your income automatically going to the government. That's garbage, people. That's garbage. 10% is what the government should get. Anything they can't do under 10% should be remanded back to the states, and nobody should complain about it. Only the very sickest and infirm people should be receiving government assistance from the taxpayers because they really need it. And other people who are able-bodied, meaning no no physical differ, uh, infirmities at all. They have no physical infirmities. Those people should be not on welfare. Hello? So Sanders and Warren have both pitched these ridiculous wealth taxes. And there's a reason that their plans tax billionaires so much more. Warren's wealth tax places a 2% levy on fortunes above $50 million, a 3% levy on assets of more than $1 billion. Sanders' plan goes further, starting the taxing of wealth at $32 million uh, or more at 1%, increasing to 8% on fortunes over $10 billion. 
With the wealth tax, you get directly at the stock instead of hitting the flow of income, making it much more powerful deconcentration tool than income taxes. And um, Sanders says his intention with these taxes is to cut the number of billionaires in the country by half over 15 years. Now, remember, because you might be thinking, well, what's wrong with that? Well, it's not that there's something wrong with that inherently other than it goes against everything our Constitution and our founders said we would be free to do in this country. But even if you take that out, if, you're, if you don't believe in the Constitution, you got to come back and you got to say, when they're done taking everything they can from the billionaires, they'll move to the millionaires. When they're done raping the, billionaire, the, the millionaires, they'll come for, um, for the middle class people. And at some point, when they're taking 50 or 60 or 70% of your income, you'll wonder, why didn't I oppose this when they were just doing it to the 400 billionaires in this country? I should have said something then. That's why. And the other reason, well, because it won't work. The reason we're not doing it now is because even if you confiscated all of their wealth and all of their income for everybody who's a millionaire or billionaire or what have you, it still wouldn't take a dent in our national debt. It wouldn't solve our poverty problems and it wouldn't fund the government. That's how big the government is right now. So it's not that you need to pour more um, money on the situation. You need to reduce the spending. So they keep talking about these taxes, um, and they are historically popular with voters. Most po- people who are polled think the wealthy pay too little, even though, and Gallup found in April that 62% of people say that upper-income individuals pay too little in taxes. But the fact is, it doesn't matter what you think about it. The upper 10% pay 87% of the tax. And even if they paid 100%, you still wouldn't be satisfied. So you might as well just shut your pie hole. That's why. All right. So um, last thing we're going to get to today, and I'm just going to run through it super quick. Mexican National Guard stopped and turned back a migrant caravan headed for the United States, a caravan of 2,000 migrants. They were mostly from uh, Central America, the Caribbean, and Africa. They joined together in a caravan of 2,000 people, and the Mexican National Guard turned them back and said, y'all can stay here or you can go back to uh, you know, any place south of Mexico, but you can't go forward to the United States. And they actually admitted, you know what? I know they said you could live here in Mexico. They said, we don't want to live here in Mexico. We're from El Salvador and we want to live in America. <laughs> That's when you know it's bad when people actually have their attitudes are all up. Their dander is all up. They're like, we want to live in America. Well, good for you, Jack. Good for you. But now that the Mexicans have those sanctions hanging over their head, I would call that another victory for President Trump. Okay? Okay. All right. God bless. Congrats to Tracy on his new blessing that he's received. I saw that in the chat room. I'm so happy for you. Thanks for being here today, everybody. Please share the show. Back with you tomorrow.